This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to the Planning Exchange podcast. Today is a very big day as it marks our 25th episode. Congratulations, Jess. <laughs> Congratulations, Pete. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined as always by Peter Jewell. Just a reminder to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for details on all of our podcast guests. Our website now also contains direct links to all of our previous podcasts, now available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Today we're joined by the mysterious James Livingston. Welcome, James. Oh, hi, Jess. Hi, Pete. Now, James is going to start today a little bit differently with a poem. Right. Here's the poem I've got to read. Let others do as they will. I am who I am. At any rate, I will walk the way that I make my own. It's by Nishida Kataro. And now, Pete, what's the background behind that? that that's a poem. Uh, he was a philosopher in Japan, and there's a walk in Kyoto, which well, I urge our listeners to do, called The Philosopher's Walk. Now you've just come back from Japan, haven't you, Pete? Yes, we just before the blossom came out. Mm, beautiful. Now, James, can you just give a quick background of your um, experience? Where have, you, where have you come from? Where have I come from? I've come from Fitzroy today. Mm-hmm. I've got an office in Charles Street, Fitzroy. And you're a planner? Yes, I am, statutory planner. And prior to that, I got into town planning, I guess by accident, in a way. I um, I did an arts degree after just doing kind of humanities at school. And I kept doing this arts degree for as long as I could. And then when I got to the end, I realised I didn't have any real job that I wanted to do. And I asked my mother what I should do. And she suggested I should do what I was good at. But I wasn't good at anything. She said, do what you find easiest. That's often what you're good at. And I looked at my um, subjects and I'd done geography and sociology. And then I looked up to see how I could still stay at uni. And there was a postgraduate course in a thing called town planning. So I enrolled in that. So that's how mm. I ended up here. I didn't really choose to be a town planner. It just mm. happened that way. Happened. It chose you. And James, <laughs> you run a small business. In the, in the planning ecosphere... What role do small practitioners have, do you think? Oh, we've got the most important role. Please. If you look at, mainly in VCAT, if you think about the people who turn up to VCAT, apart from the big plays and the big cases, the vast majority of cases are things like two and three unit appeals and a lot of those, almost all of those, are being handled by people like myself, by sole practitioners. We're the bread and butter of VCAT. We're the most important clients they've got. And what uh, advantages and disadvantages are there for people working on their own? There's no one to talk to, you know, when you don't know an answer. You've got to ring around and you've got to ask other people. There's so many times I'll ring up another sole practitioner and they don't know either. And uh, can we talk about client relationships? Gee, what do you want to know? They're a narcissistic bunch. Most of them have got some kind of personality (laughs) disorder. (laughs) And they're inherently gamblers. Mm. That's why they get into this, what effectively is speculation, property speculation. Mm. Now, you're also working in advertising for a little while. How did that come about? Was that after you were a planner? Mid-career? I'd been a town planner for about, oh, I don't know, five or six years. Had enough? 
no, no, I was reasonably happy doing it. Somebody came along and they said, you should give this a go. You should enter a competition to be a copywriter. And so I entered this competition just on a whim and I won. And so I won this job in an advertising agency. So I was happy being a town planner at the city of Collingwood, entered the competition. Next thing I know, Friday I'm town planner, Monday I'm copywriter. So, James, you inhabited the world of madmen. Did that, uh, did that that time in advertising, has it helped you with your planning and the planning submissions and the pitch you make? Yeah, strangely enough, it has. You know, as much as we deride advertising, they, um, they're very good at distilling down the important message that they want to sell to people. And that's what you need to do in town planning. There's an awful lot of white noise in the background. I reckon you've got to get to the point and you've got to get your message across nice and cleanly and that's what advertising tells you you've got to do. Some good advice, I think. Now, just getting into planning, which I know you just love, love talking about, yeah. um, do you think planning these days has too many rules or are the rules required to ensure a good outcome? It's got too many rules for the public but it hasn't got enough rules for us consultants because the more rules, the more work mm. that it's got to use. It's a very cynical approach to have. <laughs> Age. That's what it does to you. And and we'll call you a creative type. Do you think planning should be considered an art or a science? Oh. Um, I'd say it's an art form. It's not a science. Are you surprised at the lack of science in the profession? Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can apply science to, apart from working out sort of strict parameters such as setbacks and percentages of site coverage and so on. After you've done all that, it is an art form because you've got to develop housing and uses that suit people and people of all different shapes and sizes. So I don't think you can be too... I think you can be too mathematical and scientific about it. Deal with each case on its merits, deal with each client and each person. And leading on to that, would you describe architecture as love or as lust? Um, well, I think architecture and town planning go together and I think the two of them combined are the art of seduction. Ooh. And so it's lust. It's trying to convince somebody that something else is beautiful even when it's not. That's <laughs> not love. Mm, don't know. Some buildings are beautiful. Yeah, and often those buildings that are beautiful start off with criticisms that they're ugly. So I think because that's Because they're different? Yeah, because they're different. Because they're different. Because we're not used to them, because they're bold and eccentric and so they require love which is a long-term thing for you to appreciate them and what about disharmony in building form i mean we're, we're taught from an urban design perspective that there should be a, a sort of harmony in building shape and streetscape what do you think of disharmony as an as, a, as an element to create energy or well, I think disharmony does create energy. I think a contrasting building styles, contrasting building heights, not probably so much heights, but styles, uh, contrasting styles is important to give the street energy. I'm not a big fan of neighbourhood character dumbing down things, making everything look the same, effectively creating a bland city of pitched roofs and vertical windows. I like a bit of juxtaposition. I think that gives things, as you say, energy and vitality. I think it's essential and we've... Sort of forgotten that. Now, now you've um, talked about your dislike of a neighbourhood character. That, that's a universal concept around the globe in planning circles. Can you just talk to why you dis 
like they would character or your maybe it's suspicion you've got of it no it's it's more maybe it's the application of neighborhood character that is a problem for me it's like it's a refuge for people who aren't prepared to take a gamble that something might be acceptable that the public might fall in love with a building it's it, there's a there's a fearfulness about the way neighborhood character is applied that makes me believe that um, that those people who feel that we've got to have the same building next door to the building that was the same as the other building, they're not looking forward, they're looking backwards. They're looking for security of the past when we should let go of the past and embrace the future and so therefore allow buildings that don't look like the buildings that were there yesterday. Okay, and what did you what do you know now that you didn't know, say, five or ten years ago? Um, that Donald Trump would be the president of America. No, um, <laughs> I probably, I probably have learned in the last five or ten years that there's no great rush. You can calm down, enjoy life. There's nothing to prove. You know, things are going to happen anywhere, anyway. So, a kind of calmness, probably learned in the last five years. I feel like this is um, Pete's bread and butter question, but. We're told information is the basic element of 21st century. Can we talk to the idea that information wants to be free? Can you see a time when all planning information, past and present, is available? And what are the impediments? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so with information, we have freedom. Is that basically what it's yeah. saying? I'll explain, James. Planning histories are like a library where all the things that have gone before us are there. They're all documented, they're in reports, they're in submissions. If that information is available, we tend to, well, hopefully, avoid the mistakes of the past and can learn from that. But a, a lot of situations now, planning information is locked up because of closed files or whatever. It's just that now we live in an age where you can click on and find any amount of information, it would be useful to do that. Oh, yeah, look, of course, I, I wouldn't... I, I'd agree with freeing up information as much as possible, but the information is pretty free now at the moment. But I think the challenge is not the level of information that's available, the challenge is in interpreting it and using it. I don't think the challenge is that we are, we're not got enough information out there for us to make decisions. Our problem is that, um, that people interpret it in different ways. So I don't see freedom is the issue. Sure, I embrace the freedom of information. Someone in my position needs that freedom as much as they can get it. But uh, my, I'd say the challenge is the way people interpret it. And uh, what development pressures give you the most concern? And on the flip side, what development trends give you hope? I, was, I thought about, I was thinking about this the other day. The guy, Sam, who works for me, he just bought a house for like $530,000 in Pasco Vale. He's 23 years old. I spoke to another junior architect today. He's like 26. He paid $500,000 for an apartment. My concern is that because of the housing pressures, we're creating a, a society that of 20-year-olds that are burdened by massive mortgages and they're not going to be the 20-year-olds that they were once upon a time. And then the flip side of that are the other group of 20-year-olds who say, oh, well, bugger that. I'm not going to saddle myself with a mortgage. I'm going to have a smashed avocado sandwich or whatever it is. 
and I'm going to live a life that is a life that isn't tied down to a mortgage. And so I see this housing crisis as not just simply a housing crisis, it's having an effect on the way young people are behaving and it's going to impact on the way they're going to group together, the way they're going to socialise, the way they're going to experience their lives, whether their expenditure habits, a lot more than just simply not finding housing. There seems to be a lot great more angst amongst 20, 30-year-olds than I can remember so long ago. But there was just there seems to be this present anxiety about everything. Yeah, yeah. And I can understand that anxiety and I can understand that, for instance, going back to this guy Sam, he's purchased a house because he feels he needs to do it now. He feels that he's got to get in there and he's got to do it because house prices are going to keep going. And so he's prepared to put so many other aspects of his life on hold just to get that toehold that his parents or somebody else told him he needs to do. So I can imagine the pressure on those people is incredible. When I was 23, the last thing I thought about was buying a house. Now, you have three daughters, I believe. Um, can we talk a little bit on intergenerational equality? Is the planning system entrenched inequalities between gender and the ages? Um, I don't know if I can really... Whether I can talk about whether it, it engenders inequalities between the genders, but as I was just giving the example before of buying a house, mm. I think I think there is a level of inequality that needs to be corrected between the generations as to how it impacts upon the other gender. You know, I always find it hard to know that because I'm a white middle-class male with everything going for me. As far as I'm concerned, there's <laughs> no inequality in the world, but I've got a feeling there might be. So I'm not sure I'm that qualified to mention it other than I do feel privileged. I am privileged. I notice if I go into a room that... I am listened to more than someone who's younger than me, someone who's female, and someone who's female and younger than me. Mm. And so I'm able to just interrupt and talk over people and I get away with it and I watch those other people trying to get into the conversation and I can see that they struggle because it's full of middle-aged white, white men like me just running the show. Mm. So I'm aware of it, but that's about as far as I can go. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Song Bowden Planning. Song Bowden specialise in management of planning permits, planning scheme amendments and representation at DCAT and planning panels. Also thanks to SALT3 and the Victorian Planning Reports for their ongoing support. Are cities going to get better or worse? Oh, cities, cities, cities are going to get better because cities are going to get more complex because of all the problems we have within cities, whether it's housing crisis or, what, or, or transport, what have you, those problems make a city far more complex. So what makes a good city to me is a layered and complex city. So I have hope for the city, yeah. And what about this, uh, you don't make good design if you think about good design. You make good design if you speak about life, sex, flesh and sweat. That's from Philip Starks, the designer, not me. <laughs> what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it comes, it comes a, bit, a little bit back to this neighbourhood character business. You know, that if we try to mandate or legislate for good taste, it just doesn't happen. 
we just end up with nothingness. Best to just step back and put a bit of faith in the people, in the architect. But there's an awful lot of crap produced as well. There is an awful lot of crap produced, but I guess we have to ask yourself the question. Melbourne, from what I can gather, appears to be one of the most highly regulated planning areas within Australia, and if not the world. Do we have a better uh, built form outcome than other cities by virtue of the influence of town planning? I'm not so sure we do. So step back a little bit. Let's see what happens. So I guess that probably leads on to our next question about um, how can we as professionals open our minds to creativity, to vision and the future? And I suppose you've kind of answered that in that we need to probably pull back on a little bit of our control in the planning yeah. system. Yeah, and we're not going to lose we'll our jobs. Yeah, and planners affect everyone's life all the time when they're in the public domain and perhaps in their primary residence. Have we forgotten as professionals the importance we have on a civil society? Yeah, I think we have, and our importance on a civil uh, and our role in a civil society today, especially, is more important than it's ever been. And I worry that we're neglecting our responsibilities. You know, if you think about the issues that town planners um, can or should be involved in, they're front page news every second day. You wouldn't have thought, or I wouldn't have thought, when I first first started doing town planning, and it certainly wasn't the case that I could pick up a newspaper and find within the first couple of pages something that directly related to the job I do, whereas today it's a daily thing. So our role in civil society, whether we like it or not, has become far greater. Do you think that's because people understand planning a lot more now? Because um, I think we've got a lot of very educated um, objectors, for example, and resident groups and that sort of thing. And obviously they're the people that often, uh, I guess, grab the attention of the media is it because they've, they're more educated? Yeah, I think people understand planning more, but I yeah. think that's they understand it more because it affects their life more because mm. property prices are so high that the choice of what you do on your land or what your neighbour does on their land, you perceive as something that impacts on your life in such a great way mm. and impacts on your children's lives because what you get to live, the more you don't leave them. So mm. I think it, in some ways circumstances have conspired to make them have a greater understanding of planning. So just following on from that, James, have we lost, as a planning profession and allied, allied professionals, lost their sense of the great opportunities and purpose that we can, in fostering the conditions where cities and towns can not just be efficient, but a delight? I, I don't reckon, when you talk to, um, when you talk to other, when I talk to other town planners about things, all of us have got the same kind of opinion about the work we do but we're so wrapped up in each particular job and each particular client and that setback of that building or the height of the building and whether the overlay means this or it means that, that we're, that we're consumed by the, the minute detail of the day-to-day -day jobs. But when I speak to other town planners, they have the same philosophy that I have. We all share a similar philosophy about things and it's the same philosophy we've shared for probably 20 or 30 years, so nothing's really changed. It just seems to be the, legis the, the regulation. But that, that's sort of like the tactical issues in planning, like the day-to-day -day applications. In terms of the broader strategic planning, in terms of the evolution of ideas, from my experience, that really hasn't changed in 30 years. No, it hasn't. Maybe because the ideas were good. The problem, as I see it, is that there's a distinct lack of 
political will or leadership. I have so little to do with the state government planning department and, the, and I've never had anything to do with a federal government planning authority. And for a nationwide issue, such as housing affordability or homelessness or whatever, then it's essential that both levels of government get involved rather than just people like me battling it out of BCAT against the local council or whatever it is. But you say that the, the ideas from 30 years ago were sound. When you look at many other aspects of our society, the ideas of 30 years ago have been turned on their head or have moved on a long way. But planning still seems to have that same basic basic ideas. It, it hasn't evolved or changed or transmuted as a lot of other ideas in society and economics have. Yeah, yeah, I, I buy that, Pete. But I, I think the reason... I, I maintain that those basic ideas of urban consolidation and diminishing reliance on cars, try and get journey to work reduced, um, things like that, those things are constants and those things still apply today. So... They were first mooted, I don't know when, 1968 or whenever the, the MBW had it, and they're still relevant today. So, yes, the world's changed, but those principles, I think, are sound and we should stick with them because they fit in quite well with the rest of the world and the way it's changing through telecommunications and things like that. Do you use technology? Are you an advocate for technology in yeah, your work? I, I love it. Mm? It's good. It's good. I use Google Docs. You know, I do work at work and then I'll go home and sort of access the same documents at home. I love the flexibility of it. I love the fact that um, we're considering moving to the country and I don't think moving to the country is going to really mess with my job that much at all, mm. apart from having to go to things like VCAT. But in terms of being able to get my reports done, to access material, to get this free information that Peter's talking about, I see that the, the changes to technology make my job so much easier. And do you think it's making better urban outcomes? No, no. no. <laughs> what about in terms of, I guess, visualisation of um, planning applications and development? We've now got the capability with, you know, the likes of um, Biscoss and those sorts of people uh, providing these visualisations of buildings that I think VCAD and panel members find so helpful in actually understanding what is proposed. Do you think that's helpful? Yeah, I think it's helpful, but I... I Is it creating better outcomes, though? No. No, I don't think it's creating better outcomes. I think it's it's tinkering right at the edges. Things like that mm. are helpful, probably, I reckon, most for lay people mm. to get an idea of what a building's going to look like. Yeah. But I say that the majority of VCAT members and most practitioners, they've got a fair handle on how a building looks just by looking at old-fashioned 2D elevation plans. Mm. But also the data can be used in other ways because... Traditionally, planning strategies had concentric rings, for example, around centres, where when you layer a whole lot of different um, factors, those concentric rings suddenly become quite awkward shapes to reflect conditions. So uh, there's masses of data being developed, but we don't seem to be putting that into our strategies. Fair? Yeah, 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 fair, fair, and, I, and, I, and I'm sensing this is a pet topic for you. Um, <laughs> uh, so planning would benefit from more sophisticated use of data. We do use it in a fairly raw and simple way, so 
I don't disagree. Yeah. Okay. Now, can we talk a little bit, little bit about regeneration in thinking, in communicating, in processes, in individuals caught in a planning rut, in love? Regeneration. Positive regeneration. Is that a personal question? How, uh, whether I'm regenerating? A professional. Whatever. Interpret how you, how you like. Um. <laughs> yeah. um as a profession, we do the same thing day in, day out, and it's very hard to step out of the routine that we have. So, you know, I think even even things like, because uh, I go to VCAT quite a bit, going to VCAT in the way where I present arguments and other people present arguments could do with regeneration. For, for our listeners out of Victoria, can you just explain VCAT in two sentences? Uh, when you don't like what the council's decided, you can go off to an appeal to a higher body and it's an adversarial system. But thankfully, with the introduction of compulsory conferences and short case hearings, which I think are great, it's changing the way VCAT looks at resolving disputes. And I think that's a really welcome thing. So good on them. I reckon it's good. It's They, more than any other sphere of planning, are doing something about trying to resolve disputes. They're not being resolved at a council level. They're still very adversarial and political. But when you get to VCAT these days, you can feel there's something in the air about trying to solve things mm -hmm. in a more consultative manner. And, and where do you get your new ideas from and new information? What are your sources? I don't have any new ideas. They're just old ones. I just say them differently. And how do you refresh and relax? You mentioned before that you do a bit of sailing and some yoga, I believe. Yeah, I used to sail. I've sailed all my life up until the last few years. And then when we started breeding and having kids, my wife cracked it with me and said, this isn't right. All summer, you spend all summer down on the bay in the sun and then whoever you're sailing with takes you out to dinner afterwards and you come home all flushed and a little bit tipsy. And I've been here all day with these kids. So she got a bit upset. So... I often thought if my hobby was caving or rolling around in the mud in winter, I probably could have kept doing it. It mm. was the fact that it was in the sun and glamorous and all that kind of business that put the stymie on it. But so that's only been the last couple of years I've had to give it up. But, yeah, I do yoga, which is really weird because it's the exact opposite of me. It requires you to sit down, be calm, not talk and follow someone else's guide and listen to your body and listen to the rhythms of your head and your guru and all that kind of business. And so I find that strangely react, relaxing because it's so not me. Mm. So good to be out of myself and not be so self-absorbed. And you're coaching the girls' footy as well, aren't you? Yeah, I do a bit of yeah. coaching for the footy. My girls play AFL and we're at Zeitgeist Land. At the moment, it seems like there's so much money flowing into young girls playing football and mm. so much assistance and... Um, yeah, so I go down and do that. I did that last night in the rain. It was good. <laughs> well, James, thank you, Renaissance Man, for your time for this our PX, our 25th um, broadcast. Uh, so thanks again, James, and thanks, Pete. Thank you, Jess. Pete. Thanks, Pete. And I ain't about to deny it It's a special kind of thing With you oh.
持。